If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Really, we'll start in verse 14 and make our way through verse 17. And I'm just going to go ahead and come confessing to you that we are dealing with one of uh, what I am convinced to be one of the greatest and most glorious truths that are revealed in Holy Scripture. J.I. Packer called adoption the highest privilege of the gospel. Uh, And I am convinced that he spoke quite accurately in that. And so as we come to this, I do think we need to come with eyes wide open. We are looking at things and we are looking at a particular text that I have often said is perhaps the most foolish paragraph in all of sacred scripture. Um, The idea that I can be called a son of God. Not only that, the idea that I can be called an heir of God But the one that really tips me over the edge, the one that really lands me at utter confusion and amazement is really not so much that I'm an heir of God, but it's the phrasing that we are co-heirs with Christ. That is what is so staggering. And so today it is my hope that we would walk through this passage, that we would deeply understand what it means to be adopted into the family of God. And from that, understand the glorious reward, the inheritance that we have been given. And then that prompt, what I'm convinced The conclusion of Paul's argument here is, is faithful living in this world as we suffer in it. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter eight, we'll start in verse 12 and make our way through verse 18. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 12 says this, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray together. Father, we come staring at beauty. Lord, amazed at the realities that you have set out for us. Lord, it would not be surprising in the least if you would have simply made us slaves. But instead we see here, Lord, that you have made us sons. As a father, I ask today, would you help us to stand in all of this? Would you help us to be baffled by it, but awestruck? Lord, amazed at the grace that is offered to us in Jesus Christ and amazed at the love of the father that began before the world did. And so father, I ask, would you help me as we labor in this? Lord, these things are far too lofty. And Lord, I come confessing to you frailty and weakness and slowness, But Lord, I also come with great confidence knowing that the word of God always accomplishes a purpose and that it never returns void. It is in the name of the blessed son of God and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. As we come to this passage, it really is important that we actually look back some. And so if you would turn the page, if you have a Bible like mine to chapters six and chapter seven of the book of Romans. And the reason that we have to go back is because it really is important to see where we once were. And I mean, we've walked through Romans 6 and Romans 7, and as we've talked through it, it's pretty obvious, as we'll see here in a moment, that the term slave actually is and rightly is used in regard to the Christian. We are slaves of God. As a matter of fact, if we pay close attention to the introduction of the majority of Paul's letters, Paul's number one claim of his own position is, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. This is his normal boast as he introduces himself in any epistle. 
And so I want to go back and I want to remind us where we were and who we have become now that we are in Christ Jesus. So the very first thing that we must remember before we get into who we are now in Romans 8, we must remember that we were in slavery to sin and the law. So I want you to notice Romans 6.20. Romans 6.20 says, in short, for when you were slaves of sin. Brothers and sisters, we were all born in this state. We were born slaves of sin. Ever since our first father, Adam, fell, every single human, human soul was enslaved to sin. If you go a little bit further on into Romans chapter 7, you'll notice that we were sold under sin in verse 14 of chapter 7. So this was our state. We were enslaved to sin. We were bound to it. But then it actually goes a bit further. It's not only that we were enslaved to sin, but we were also enslaved to the law. Romans 7, 6, it says, but now we are released from the law. There's a very clear assumption inside of that, that we were bound to the law. We were indebted in the truest sense of the word to the law. And the way that we were indebted to the law was through justice. The reason that we sing, Jesus paid my debt, is because Jesus paid the sin debt that the law demanded. And so the reason that we were released, the reason that we were freed from slavery to sin and the law was because of Jesus Christ's righteous act and his glorious work of the cross. He laid down his life, and as he laid down his life in one fell swoop, he frees us from slavery to sin and slavery to the law. But not only that, because that, that's, that's one portion of the work of redemption. He frees us from one thing, but he brings us into something different, right? If we look at Romans 6, 18, it tells us, and having been set free from sin, so through the work of Jesus Christ, I've been set free from sin. I have now become, as verse 18 says, slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of righteousness. If we go a bit further in Romans 6.22, I think we have even better clarity on this. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Now that's the position that we really end Romans 7 with, the concept that we are slaves of God. We've been free from slavery to sin and slavery to the law. And now we have and are right to call ourselves slaves of God. We should not be hesitant to call ourselves that which the apostle called himself. We are right to call ourselves slaves of God. And it should be our greatest joy. If we didn't have Romans 8 telling us that there is a deeper position of sonship, I'll be honest with you, I'm just thrilled that I get to be in the house. If I get to wait tables, that's perfectly reasonable for me. Honestly, in my finite mind, that makes more sense than anything else. If you're gonna redeem a fallen, ruined sinner who was once a slave, it makes perfect sense that the one who you redeem would then become a slave in your house. He'd wait your tables, He'd clean your house, he'd open the door, and I am 100% good if that's the only thing he offers me because that's infinitely more than I ever deserved. And so as we read through this, there's this position of slavery that really is overarching. And as it overarches, really Romans 6, 7, and then leads us into 8, there is this introduction of a new understanding of who we are now that we are in Christ Jesus. So we're not just slaves, even though I think that would make perfect sense logically on who we are and then who we will become. A slave becomes the slave of another. Perfect sense. But then we approach Romans chapter 8, verses 14, really 14 and 15, and we have this language. Hear, hear what the Word of God says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
And then in verse 15, he goes forth to clarify, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And if I can just confess to you, I spent a great deal of time looking at this simple phrase, receive the spirit of slavery, because I'm reading through this and I'm trying to work, understand this phrase with what he's just told me in Romans 6 and 7, telling me that I am a slave of God. I am a slave of righteousness now. So what do you mean that I don't have a spirit of slavery any longer? Well, let's look at that. Let's try to answer the question, what what does he give us? And then we'll answer the question why it makes no logical, just sense for God to give us a spirit of slavery. So let's look at what he ultimately does give us. He gives us a spirit of adoption over a spirit of slavery. We'll answer the question, why not a spirit of slavery at the end of this? But the first is this, why a spirit of adoption? What's the intention of giving us this spirit of adoption? I do want you to notice the language there. It seems to be making very clear reference to the person of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you pay close attention throughout the scriptures, especially Romans and Galatians, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit of adoption. He is the spirit of freedom. He is the one that releases. He does not bind. If he binds to anything, he binds us to Christ and it is a glad binding. But as we approach this, we wanna ask the question, okay, what does it mean Why is it that we have been given a spirit of adoption? And I wanna give you really four major points. The first is this, it shows the intention of God in salvation. You know, we read through passages of scripture that deal with salvation and we almost always think about the here and now. Very rarely do we launch ourselves into eternity past where there is a great deal of beauty and glory. Instead, we always think about it from the perspective of, okay, now that all of that has been done, I can rightly call myself a son of God. And we are right to call ourselves sons of God. But what is the intention? When we look back into eternity past, what was God's primary intention of bringing about salvation? Now, obviously the first and foremost was to his own glory. We must never forget that. But what you'll notice as you study the scriptures, especially when you deal with the language of predestination or election, is that almost hand in hand with those two terms is adoption. So let's just notice Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 1.5 says this. This is right after, by the way, it says that he has, he has predestined us to be holy and blameless before him. The link to that, the idea of being holy and blameless before him is actually rooted, is rooted in God's intention of adopting sons into his family. Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoptions to, adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. When did God's purpose of adoption begin? I mean, we think about this, and sometimes I think we place the cart before the horse. We think about the means by which he will redeem, and we never understand or anchor ourselves in his primary intention of redemption. His primary intention of redemption is to bring about sons of God, is to rescue and to redeem, to fill his table full with saints that have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we understand this primary purpose of election, all of a sudden it fills the eternity past with an endless glory. God's intention when he predestined any human being to salvation was first and foremost to bring them to his table. It's the reason that we have this table as a centerpiece of worship. We come to it, and when we come to it, we do not come to it as slaves. We come to it as sons. We dine at the king's table because we are his children. And so when we understand God's purpose, God's intention of salvation, being first and foremost, adoption to bring souls into his family, he then acts, I think, appropriately with his primary purpose of election. Galatians 4, 6, Don read this as a call to worship last week. I want you to notice the order here. Galatians 4, 6, 
And because you are sons, I want you to notice that simple phrase, because you are sons. We look at that and we always think about it on the back end of salvation. That's not what this text says. It says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So what's the cause and what's the effect? The cause is that God has elected you for sonship. He has intended to ransom you and bring you into his family, to have you dine at his table. And because of that glorious truth, he then sends the spirit of adoption into your heart that you can respond appropriately. Now, the reason this is so important is because if we miss this, we see adoption as a ramification, not the primary intent. The primary intent, dear saint, is that you would rightly call out Abba Father because he elected you to his sonship before the world began. And if we grasp this, if I can just offer a brief moment of application, tell me how you can fear for your own soul. Tell me how you tremble that God will not be faithful. He brought you into his family by decree before you existed, before the foundations of the world were laid. And so what do we have? We see the intention of God in salvation through the spirit of, through the spirit of adoption that he gives us. But secondly, it is also to remind us of the love of God. Can I just confess to you, we approach this idea of the love of God and I'll say it's not super difficult to preach on his wrath, genuinely, to preach on his justice, but to preach on the love of God in Christ, I find myself often without language and words because I cannot accurately lay out the true extent, the magnitude, the eternality of the love of God. But it seems as though according to scripture, the purpose of adoption is so that we might understand and know the love of God. So Ephesians 1.5, again, how is it? What's the origin of this predestination for adoption as sons? In love. The origin of this flows from the unmerited love of God. This love that knows no beginning or end. It was in existence with him before the foundation of the world throughout eternity past. Dear brothers and sisters, I can say this with absolute confidence. If you find yourself in Christ today, then you can know this. You have been loved by him since before the world began. And not only have you been loved by him since before the world began, you have been loved by him for as long as he has been. And we know with great certainty that is an eternal existence. It is the love of God that is being professed, being taught, being deposited, if you will, in the mind of those who have been adopted by him. But not only that, 1 John 3, 1 actually tells us, and you can imagine John working through all the ways that he has seen and understood the love of God. If there was anyone that had the right to write on it, it would have been John. John, that beloved disciple who followed him faithfully, who was one of the only ones that found himself at the cross itself. And he's looking at at all the majesty, all the glory, all the demonstrations of the love of God. And what does he focus on as he tells us of the love of God? He focuses again on adoption. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I'm just going to say right here, if I were to fill this in, in my own mind, I would say, see him on the tree. See him crucified, see him condescend for us, see him laying in a manger for us, uh, surrounded by, by cows and donkeys in this filthy land. 
being made like his brothers in every way. If I'm considering the magnitude of the love of God, that's the way that I'm measuring it. That's the way I'm laying it out for you. But this is not what the apostle John does. The apostle John, if he's trying to show us the depth of the love of God, he says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I love that emphatic statement on the end that we should be called children of God. Most certainly all the work of Christ is, is captured with that. But when we understand that this goes all the way back in Trinitarian harmony, God's purpose was to adopt souls into his family. And that really does lead us into our next point. The spirit of adoption here is consistent with the work of the father and the son. We've already spoken of God's primary purpose of electing into the family of God. We look back at Ephesians 1.5. We look at 1 John 3.1 and Galatians chapter 4. We see that his intention was to ransom souls into his family. God's purpose there is quite clear. But then as we watch the ministry of Jesus Christ, what do we see? We see him labor. We see him work. And what is the purpose of all of his work of redemption? It is not just to save sinners, though that is a mighty part. It's to ransom sons. It's to ransom sons, to bring them into fellowship. Even to the extent where Jesus in John 14, as he's preparing the disciples for his departure, he looks back at them and he says, I will not leave you as orphans because brothers and sisters, after we have been freed from the law and from slavery to sin, we find ourselves without. We need a head. We need a father. We need someone to be bound to. And so Jesus looks back and he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If you pay close attention at the conclusion of the book of John, how does he refer to his disciples? He calls them children. It's a glorious indication that his work of redemption is not only fulfilled and accomplished, but the work of adoption as well. Now, not only do we see Jesus and the Father in harmony here, here we see that the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption fills the heart of those who are sons. This is his work of redemption. This is his work of adoption. He takes the father's decree, the son's work, and he floods the heart of those who were elected to be sons from before the foundation of the world, those whom Jesus had ransomed as sons, and he fills their hearts so that they will understand and know who they are. Because dear saints, if you have been elected from before the foundation of the world to be the sons of God, even in our ignorance, that remains true. Before you were converted, you were treated as a slave. It's quite clear from the book of Galatians. But in the purposes and the decree of God, you were always sons and daughters. His intention was to bring about adoption. And brothers and sisters, his intentions know no fault nor failure. They always come to, fa- come to pass. They're always brought to fruition. We have been decreed. Jesus' work was accomplished. And now the spirit of God fills our hearts with the spirit of adoption, ultimately producing evidences of sonship. Now, that doesn't answer the final question, which is, why would we not be given the spirit of slavery again? Can I just say that if we understand all that we have just spoken of, and if we understand the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, it is wholly inconsistent in regard to God's justice that he would give us a spirit of slavery. Why? First, because the righteous requirements of the law have already been fulfilled. How is it that we can have any form of slavery? Everything that was necessary for our redemption has already been perfectly accomplished. There is no spirit of slavery. Most certainly we can say that we are slaves of God. 
We do not have a spirit of slavery because all the work has already been finished. It has been accomplished in, in totality. And if we go a bit further, finally, it's because those who are in Christ Jesus have no condemnation. Thus, fear is removed. Pay very close attention to the language of verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. I want you to notice this, to fall back into fear. The spirit of our God does not bring us into a slavery like the law and sin did. They are not equivalents. We go forth gladly being slaves because we have been ransomed, because we have been freed from condemnation, not because we have a debt of sin that we cannot pay, not because we must sit there fearful waiting judgment. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says it this way, since therefore the children, again, that same adoptive language, share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Notice this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did Jesus conquer? Did Jesus redeem? Was he able to save into the uttermost? And the answer to that question is yes, a resounding yes at that. That means that there can be no more fear for us. Why? Because we owe no debt to keep us out of redemption. Jesus paid the debt in full, brothers and sisters. And certainly you perhaps think back to that concept of we are debtors. Oh, most certainly we are. But our debt is not like the debt that the law demanded of us. 1 John 4, 13 through 18 goes a bit further, I think, to lay out the way that Christ has redeemed and the freedom that we have from a spirit of slavery, that is, a spirit that would lead us back into fear. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Notice this language. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The spirit of adoption does not bring judgment. It's the reason we anchor everything that we, read, everything that we read in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just if this statement wasn't true, then brothers and sisters, we would not have a spirit of adoption. We would have a spirit of slavery that would cast us back into fear because we would be doing something. We'd be laboring. The righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in our workings, not through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We would still have that spirit of slavery, but that is not what we have. It would be wholly inconsistent with all, of other, with all of God's other acts of redemption to give us a spirit of slavery. No, he fills our hearts with a spirit of adoption. Now that leads us to a simple question. What is it that the spirit of adoption does? What does it do? What does it produce? And I'm convinced if I were to summarize this in one simple phrase, I would say the spirit of adoption gives us the evidences of our sonship. What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be brought into the household of faith. Well, Paul walks us through a couple. If you notice again in verse 15, we'll read through verse 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's look at a couple of things that are pointed out from just this passage. First, the Holy Spirit gives us a profession, gives us the ability to profess Abba, Father. We use this language here often and I'm convinced we use it wisely because it is the first mark of the Christian. 
The mark of the Christian is one who shouts. It is by the Holy Spirit through him that we are able to profess Abba, Father. So we go forth proclaiming that he belongs to us and we belong to him, not in a distant slavery relationship, but instead a familial one. We draw near this concept of Abba, Father is deeply intimate language. It's knowing him. It's having an intimacy with him. It's the idea that we find later on in the book of Hebrews when it tells us to draw near with hearts full of assurance and with confidence. Can you imagine as a slave drawing near to the king of glory, the righteous one altogether, I would enter into that throne room with the greatest of trembling and fear. But as a son, there is no reason for trembling. Why? Because we actually do, we have been adopted into his family. And so when we go into the throne room of grace, we go into the throne room of grace as sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. We make our way in and we walk in boldly. One simple illustration that I think is really helpful is who is permitted to wake the king for a glass of water? Anyone else who does this would probably be put to death, but a child? A child can walk in and wake his father at any given moment and the father have nothing but joy in most cases. But so we go forth and we cry, Abba, Father. This is a production of the Spirit. And hear me, this cannot be uttered apart from the Spirit's work. I want you to notice again in verse 15. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Notice the language, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You cannot profess this apart from the spirit of God. Or at bare minimum, you cannot profess this in the audience of the king and not be called a liar without the spirit of God giving you the utterance. I can say with great certainty, there are many who would call God father who have not been adopted into his family and they say it to their own detriment. They should be in fear and trembling because they have no mediator to bring them into the throne room of grace. But we, those of us who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus have been given the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, father, our father hears with great joy and delight to hear his children cry out to him. And that word cry is actually a rather important one because it's not, it's not an intellectual profession. You know, I think we can read the scriptures, we can put together a formula, my goodness, if some person thought, okay, I can white knuckle this, I can do this based upon my own will. Well, I'll just go out and I'll cry, Abba, Father. You think of men like Nadab and Abihu who walk into the presence of God, though they are not supposed to be there, immediately they are put to death. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is not based upon an intellectual assessment of the situation. It's based upon the first cry of life that the Spirit of God brings about. We go forth crying, Abba, Father, because we have been born into the kingdom of God. And as we have been born into the kingdom of God, we go forth professing, He is our Father. And the Spirit makes it so that we are not liars. So we go forth professing. Not only that, but in this profession, as we heard in the call to worship, we mimic the Lord Jesus in our profession as God as Abba Father. I think this helps us understand the next phrasing of heir and co-heir, but Mark 14, 36, just to read it again to you. And he said, Abba Father. This is Jesus speaking in one of the deepest moments of prayer that our Lord had. Abba Father, all things are possible for you. The fact that I can utter the exact same words, the fact that I can say them not as a liar or a fool, tells me of the depth of adoption that God has actually provided for me. For me to be able to say, Abba, Father, 
The same way that my Lord said it as he was in the garden shows the depth, the true familial act that God had brought about to bring enemies into his family. And if I could maybe remind you at this very moment, when we go all the way back to Romans chapter five, who is it that Jesus died for? When did the father love us while we were yet sinners? And then he delights to take those sinful lips sanctify them with the blood of Christ and have them profess the exact same words that our Lord uses in regard to his father. Abba, Father, he says. And Abba, Father, we say in mimicking our Lord. Now, secondly, the spirit of adoption bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I'll confess to you, this is a really interesting one because I was trying to figure out the dynamic between the spirit of adoption, bearing witness, preaching, essentially, to tell us that we truly do belong to God. And that spirit bears witness with our new, vivified, made alive spirit of God. We have been altered. We have been changed. We are not what we once were. When the spirit of God gave life, he truly gave life. Our spirit is quickened. It's made alive. And if that's the case, then how is it that these two things profess and give assurance of salvation, not only assurance of salvation, but an assurance of adoption. Because this is the true depth. If, I have, if, if there was a desire that every saint could understand one great thing, it's not just that they have been saved, it's that they have been adopted. They have been brought into the family of God. And the Spirit's intention is to convey that to you, is to teach you this, is to pour that truth into your heart. And so how is it that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit first, Let me say this, it is not through some spiritual gift or extraordinary testimony. It is not because you have the ability to speak in tongues. It's not because you had a unique feeling or emotional response to something. It is deeper than that. Now, oddly, in our day and time, that has the idea of being the height of depth. It is the furthest thing from it. It is the most ordinary and normative actions of God in salvation that testify and bear witness to the fact that you have been brought into his family. The very first being this, that through the new birth, the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 12. Forgive me, not 1 John, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How is it, dear saint, that you became a Christian? How is it that you, in the midst of your own rebellion, depravity, and wickedness, then were birthed into the family of God? How did you get there? You got there because the Spirit of God and His infinite grace quickened you, filled you with the spirit of adoption, and declared you to be a son of God by the new birth. It is a beautiful understanding of this blessed new covenant that we live in. Every single member of the new covenant has been born into the family of God by the spirit of adoption. We have experienced the new birth. As we have experienced the new birth, it is a great and glorious declaration that you are children of God. Born again, we're brought into his family. It is a grand and loud proclamation. Thirdly, It is through his leading and our being led as verse 14 makes clear. Notice what verse 14 says again. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. What is this making reference to? How is it that we live in this new life? How is it that we make our way through this new birth? We went from dead to alive, and now that we've been brought from death to life, we, we, we live here, but how is it that we make our way? How is it that we see the path? How is it that we're able to follow Jesus in the simplest of terms? How is it that we're able to do this at all? 
Well, it's only because the spirit of adoption guides and leads. It's only through his work of, I would say, sanctification that we see the Lord actively working in our life to continuously profess that you are children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And here's the beauty. The Spirit of God is always leading. He's always guiding. He's always active in the life of the Christian. If he wasn't active in the life of the Christian, then you have no claim to life at all. The only reason that you actually have affection and love and faith and dependence upon the infinite God of glory is because the Spirit of God is actively at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Apart from this action, apart from this guidance and leading, there is no witness in the midst of our new life. And yet we know with great certainty that he is ever active. He is constantly at work and he is bringing about a glorious end. And so we see that the spirit bears witness with our spirit. In the new birth, we see him bear witness with our spirit in sanctification. Another way that I think we see this is in his act of sealing, in his act of giving and communicating to us the promised inheritance that we'll see here in a moment. But Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. I am often in need of being reminded of the glorious inheritance that is offered to me. The simplest reason is because this world offers me great deals of riches. It offers me glory. It offers you the exact same thing. It offers you all of this pseudo treasure. And what we often need to be reminded of is this is not our home. This is not the land that we receive our inheritance in. This is not the place that we have all of the victory. The place that we go, the kingdom that cannot be shaken is not of this world. It is distinct. It is different. It is an inheritance that has been guaranteed to us. And we look forward to having it in our hands. And we even experience portions of it here and now. But we still await. We long looking forward to something more. And he has been given to us as a guarantee. We have this guarantee in us to remind us that we are sons. And if sons, we are heirs. That there is a great treasure. But not only that, fourthly, he bears witness lastly through the redemption of our bodies. Notice what Romans 8.23 says. If you scroll down just a little bit, it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The final testimony of the spirit of God that you truly are a child of God is that day when all the children of God at the very same moment will be raised and they will be raised bodily and together they will all be changed and they will be changed to receive and to enjoy the glorious reward, the inheritance that God has set aside for his children through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The final moment, the the moment that we can all take the deepest and most glorious sigh of relief, all the confidence, all the joy, all the longing that we have had in life will ultimately be brought to fruition when the body is raised from the dead. And we will then be declared not only in name, but in nature, children of God. Because we are no longer what we once were. The body of death has been done away with. I no longer bear the image of the man of dust. I have been adopted and I will be adopted. My nature will be altered, I will be changed. Each and every saint of God will be altered altogether. Now, that is not all that the Spirit teaches us though. The Spirit also tells us of the riches that we have. I want you to notice this language again. Verse 18, 
Forgive me, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the very first phrase that we see is that phrase of being an heir of God. Now this promise actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, this is the beginning of the chapter where we deal with the covenant that God makes with Abram. But in 15.1, it says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. Now, there's some translations that alter that and says that he will have a very great reward. I think that's an erroneous understanding of that text. The more appropriate is to say that God himself will be the reward of Abraham. And the reason that I'm convinced of that is because this theme essentially runs throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, I think ultimately finding its conclusion here in Romans chapter 8. Because in Psalm, Psalm 16, verses 5 through 6, it says this, The Lord himself is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is the psalmist working through here? And if you actually take Psalm 16 and you make your way to the very end, he's meditating upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But at the exact same time, he's understanding that the true inheritance of the Christian life is God himself. The joy of the Christian, the delight here and now, is it not? Is the thrill of your soul not in those glorious moments of intimacy with you and your father? Is it not enjoying him as you taste everything else this world has to offer and you find it fleeting and empty? And then you sit in the presence of the most high God and you think, I can dwell here forever. Well, praise be to God, you will. It's our joy, our inheritance to enjoy God, to delight in him, to rejoice in him, to say rightly, he is our portion and our only one at that. And he is more than sufficient. But then lastly, Numbers 18, 20, this is speaking particularly to priests, but I'm convinced that what we have in the New Testament and those who've been ransomed by the blood of Christ is a priesthood of every believer. And it says this, he's speaking to Aaron. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. None, you get nothing. And you would think the heart would sink as he's watching all of his brother's tribes flourish in the land. And then you have this phrase, and you can imagine this phrase would thrill the heart of the true Jew who looks and adores the God of heaven. And oh, how it would dismay the wicked one. Because it goes on to say, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. This is a good trade. This is a good and glorious trade. And this is the trade that every Christian must make. We look at the world, we look at all the riches of it and say, no, 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 no. I know, I know this world. I know that it will all burn. I have been promised something so much better. I will dwell, Christ, God is my reward. I will dwell with him forever. I will rejoice in him. I must say with the psalmist, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He is my portion, he is my lot, and I am rich. But not only that, certainly God is our reward. We will dwell with him. We will enjoy his paradise because he is present there. But lastly, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. I would love to be able to, to work through this in a way that does this text uh, uh, makes in a worthy way. I'm actually just stunned by this every time I find myself here. Because... I understand the concept of bringing people into the fatherhood of God to enjoy him. Like I, I, I get that to some degree. But the fact that I can be called a co-heir with Christ, have you seen him? Like, do you understand the work that he's done? I mean, let's just consider eternity past, 
The father sends the son, right? The son comes, he comes clothed in the form of a servant. Let's just take Philippians, for example. Clothed in the form of a servant, passes through his own creature to be born, is then laid not in a glorious king, king's palace, but instead in a manger. And as he sits in that manger, he matures and grows up the same way that every single one of us mature and grow up, yet without sin in every way. And then in the midst of his earthly ministry, he's baptized like I'm going to be baptized. He then sends, he again works out all the works of redemption, all the while perfectly fulfilling everything that the scripture testifies, even to the extent, even so thorough, that on the cross of Christ, he says, I thirst for the sole purpose of fulfilling the scriptures. And then he goes and he is laid in a tomb. And as he's laid in a tomb, he is there conquering death for us, is raised on the third day for our justification. And then he ascends and is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high, ever living to mediate for us. You tell me why I'm called a co-heir. What have I done? I've sat here and benefited. I've sat here and I should be being made a slave of this glorious king of heaven. And yet, I cannot preach that. What I must preach, what I must say, what we must cling to is that, no, 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 I'm not a slave. I'm a son. And not only am I a son, I'm an heir of God, which means he is my reward. And to what extent will I have that reward? The same extent in which Christ has it. That's how glorious this inheritance is. That's what we actually receive. And here in this final verse, you have this language that's introduced. And it says on the back end of all this, it's almost like as Paul's working through this, he's preparing us for something. He's telling us, he's, he's essentially loading us down with glory so as to prepare us for a bit of humiliation. Because it goes on, you would think the conclusion of this would actually, I mean, would, the suffering portion of this text seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, you read through it and you're like, oh, sons, I'm an heir, I'm an heir of God. And then you get to the last phrase here, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And you think, well, that's left field. Why is it that he would introduce the concept of suffering on the back end of telling us all the glories, all the riches, all the inheritance that has been merited to us from Christ? I think a simple way to ask the question is this. In light of all of that glory, what is the world worth? In light of all the inheritance that Christ has merited, in the light of the fact that we are children of God, which clearly separates us from the world altogether, in light of the fact that the spirit of adoption is poured into our hearts, that we look forward to an inheritance, we look forward to the glorification of the body, I'll be honest with you, man, that empowers my suffering. Man, that encourages me to suffer well to the glory of God. And sometimes we think about this language of suffering, and we always think about it like if blood's not shed, it's not suffering. That is not what we are talking about here. We speak in the ordinary, and I'm convinced the scriptures do as well. The ordinary, everyday suffering of the Christian life is very clearly the groanings that we experience as we continue to dwell here, knowing that we are bound and destined for glory. We experience, don't we? the frailty of the body, 
We experience our own wrestling with sin. How is it that we can suffer well in the midst of that? How is it that we can go back to Romans, Romans 8, 13 and tell us to put to death the misdeeds of the body and we will live? Why can I put to death the misdeeds of the body? I know what's mine. Don't give me the trifles of this world, burn them. And I don't do that because I am a debtor. I do it because I'm a son. I do it because I know what actually is mine. I do it because I know the glory that's on the horizon. And so we go forth suffering well with Christ, knowing that the future is a glorification to dwell with him forevermore. And I do think there is a certain point in scripture where we have this really developed and not just developed, but developed from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. What does it look like to suffer and what is the end result should we conquer? Now, we must understand that later on in the book of, later, later on in the book of Romans, in Romans 8, it tells us that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. In Revelation 12, it tells us that the only means by which we conquer in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 11, is and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So anytime the word conqueror is used in regard to the Christian, we must immediately flee to the one who is the conqueror first and foremost, and secondly, the one that through whom we conquer. So any victory that we have is owed to him. Any means by which we suffer here and ultimately triumph is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at a couple of these. As you know, these are letters that are written to the churches and they vary to various churches. But I just want to point out a couple of things to you because as you read through this, you know, you look at chapter two and you see that there's this concept in chapter two of clinging to love. The whole concept is they abandon their first love and then he tells them to go forth and to conquer. And this is what he tells them, should they conquer? Should they persevere? Should they ultimately be conquerors? It says this in verse seven, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Can I just confess to you that if this is the reward, I can find myself laboring a bit more faithfully in pursuing Christ as my first love. There is a glorious reward here. And so what, is I, what do I do in the midst of my suffering? In the midst of me longing to hold on to loving Christ first and foremost, do you struggle with this? Do you have to war in yourself to find Christ to be your greatest treasure and not be swayed by the things of this world? This is suffering that they are enduring. They are enduring a pursuit of love and adoration of Jesus. It is what we do day in and day out because he deserves our affection. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our love. And what is the reward of this? What is it that we, what is the glory on the back end of it? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then later on, to the church at Smyrna, he tells them amidst poverty and prison that should they go forth being faithful unto death, he will give them the crown of life. What are they doing? They're suffering. They're suffering and they're looking forward to the glory that's on the horizon. Not only does he tell them that he will give them the crown of life, he goes on and says this, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, the one who suffers with him and will ultimately receive glory. What glory is it? They will not be hurt by the second death. They will be given the crown of life. Going on a bit further, just to kind of speed this up a bit, in chapter two, verse 17, he deals with those who are seeing false teaching and false prophets that are fighting for truth. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who wrote it. And then going on a bit further, he tells them in verse 26, 
the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. This is for those who endure. Chapter three, verse five, those who labor in obedience, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. What glory. Later on in verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Again, the last one, when they are pursuing zeal and discipline, he says in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne with me. I want you to notice this language. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Who are these men and women who conquer? How is it that they suffer and they endure and they are found faithful? Maybe the first question is, why is it that they suffer? They suffer because they are not home. They suffer because they have been set apart. They suffer because the spirit of adoption has filled their souls and it showed them that this place is not their home, that they must labor here, that there, might, there will be great suffering here, that they will experience being, in, being impoverished and being imprisoned, that they will struggle and labor in their obedience and longing to adore Christ the way that they should. They certainly suffer. And brothers and sisters, only sons suffer like this. But hear me but all sons endure and all sons will with Christ sit upon that throne, not because they have done anything, but because they have conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony. And we can rightly say the sons of God will be victorious because the true son of God already has been. Let's pray together.